This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From baseball's top personalities. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. To the A's legendary players. Five-time Major League Baseball home run champ, Mark McGuire is with us here. You never know what stories you're going to hear. We used to come out here to lunch and run with our shirts off. <laughs> you would say. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We got a bunch of former A's, Marcus Simeon, Tommy Malone, the coach Ron Washington, and the writer Howard Bryant, who has recently done the book on Ricky Henderson. But we will start with an all-time favorite. You know we love him. Here is Marcus Simeon. And it is just fitting here for you watching on YouTube, you watching on Twitter, that our first guest is our old friend Marcus Simeon, someone who has been so good to us all the years as a great A and a guy from the Bay Area, San Francisco to Berkeley to the Oakland Athletics, now with the Texas Rangers. I, it's just fitting that we finally are allowed to do this and you're our first guest. How you been? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be home. Yeah, no, I'm just seeing you walk over here and all the hugs, uh, all the guys, and obviously home for family and uh, you know, probably the kids come with you and grandparents get to see the kids. I know it's your second time this season, but it's always got to feel good when those uh, when the plane touches down and you're back. It is. You know, it's that was a big reason I came back to the AL West. You know, free agency, you get to decide, you know, where you want to go to a certain extent. And, you know, Texas and the AL West is important uh, to me to be able to come home and see my parents more and, um we still have a house here, so to stay in the house, it, it was nice. Well, I can tell you, I just tell people, you know, when I first left the radio station to take the job with the A's, it was a very, it was a big decision, right? It was uh, for my family, it was very emotional, and it was a risk, and it was all of that. And I'll never forget, so I sign with the A's, I leave the radio station, I go down to spring training, we're launching A's cast for the very first time, and most players, they don't know. They don't care, right? They have no idea. It was you who came up to me in the clubhouse and said, hey, congratulations. I heard you're coming to the A's. I'll never forget that. And to me, it will always show what a class act and what a great A you'll always be. And while we'll always love you as an A because how thoughtful you, how thoughtful you were and you still are to this day, but how you just know everything that's going on. The fact that you came over and said that to me, that'll always mean a lot. No, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you, you're still doing what you're doing with the A's and you're making a big impact on this community. And, um, you know, I always paid attention to Bay Area sports as a kid. So, you know, whether it's on the radio or, you know, the TV networks or whatever, a lot of people in this area want to know what's going on. And for you to deliver that, it, it means a lot. Well, and, and I think about where you have gone. And I, I do want there's I actually have a couple of questions about Toronto. But how's it going so far in Texas? Because let's face it, third team in third years, it's a, in, in three years, it's a lot of change. Yeah, definitely. You know, last year going to Toronto, um, you know, having a you know not great first month. You don't know anybody. Um, it's not always the easiest thing. Now this year, same thing. A little bit worse. A little bit worse of a slump. Um, but there's some things that I'm working out, and I'm excited about. Um, we have a good mix of veteran and young talent here in in texas as well that i'm really excited about and a front office that is really hungry to win so it's a good combination well it's interesting you know you you, you know talk about slow starts but then all of a sudden now here you guys come like all of a sudden you were looking at the standings going wow texas is in trouble you've erased that and you're starting to play well in the west you guys are coming in here no question with a lot of confidence yeah, the last nine games we knew uh, what we had in front of us with Anaheim, Houston, and Anaheim again, and um, and then here in Oakland. So we knew that we needed to play our best ball in the division. Um, our pitching has been unbelievable. 
you know, I think it's time for the bats to get going, and we'll see what we can do. And, you know, everybody's saying that in the league. That's the thing is that you, you, you look around, and I don't know if it's the humidor. I don't know. People are talking about when the weather warms up. Uh, balls have been different. We've been talking about that for years. Just It's just not you guys or yourself. There's a lot of people have been struggling early. Do you think there's something to the humidor or the balls or anything? Well, I mean, now we have technology to tell us how hard we hit it at what angle. And, you yeah. know, certain years, certain miles per hour with a certain angle we're getting out. Um, and it depends. You know, it's still early where the weather is not hot yet. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's something that as a hitter I always pay attention to, especially as a guy who doesn't hit the ball 110, 115 miles an hour. You need to, you know, hit it at 100, 105 at a, at a 30 degree and feel like it's going to get out. And that's kind of my game and what my game has been. Um, so we'll see how the year goes on. But like I said, personally, I feel like, if my mechanics are right and I'm doing things the right way, I'm confident and I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at. Now, I, I only got to go to the old ballpark. I haven't traveled with a team since COVID. I, I got to imagine going to that new yard every day is pretty sweet. It is very sweet. Um, it's, it's luxury. It's <laughs> you walk in the clubhouse, you have everything you need. The, the facilities are amazing. It's a great place to show up to work. Um, and you know me, I just want to play baseball. So um, they have provided everything we need as players to get better and, and win, and now it's up to us to utilize it to the best of our ability. What do you think of the division so far, now that you've seen the division? I mean, we just finally just saw the Mariners for the first time. I know the Angels at this point still haven't seen the Mariners. You've seen everybody in division. So when we talk about yourself, you talk about the Angels, you talk about the Astros. Like, like how, how, how do you see the division as someone who's played in it for so long now? Yeah, it's a well-balanced division. I think that everybody's got pitching. Um, all the starters in the, the division are rolling right now. Um, in Seattle, they're sitting there at the bottom right now, I believe, and they have you know former Cy Young winner and a bunch of young arms. So they they're going to make some noise too. Uh, it's really going to come down to who's hitting and who's playing the best defense because the pitching has been locked in in the, the division. Now I got. I want to ask you about Toronto because some of the, you know you could say to a guy, "Hey, what was it like playing in Toronto?" But that's not Marcus Simeon's journey with the Toronto Blue Jays. Technically, there was some Toronto. There was also your spring training facility. There was Buffalo. What's it like playing for a team that doesn't really have a home? I mean, that had to be a crazy year for you. It was. I mean, we started the year off in Dunedin where I think most of the games were like road games to us. Um, we, The Blue Jays did not have a large fan base in Dunedin. Um, everyone in our division seemed to have a larger fan base. We played Tampa, obviously, that's close to Dunedin. Yeah. Red Sox, um, Yankees, they had more fans than we did. So we, you know, it was an adjustment to play big league games in a spring training facility under the lights where the lights are a little dimmer um, but then when we went to Buffalo we kind of turned it on we had fan support throughout we had um, we had literally Toronto fans coming down to Buffalo and packing that AAA stadium we felt the energy and once we got to Toronto although it was limited capacity it was it felt loud in there and we really fed off that and I think about the crowds that you guys get in Texas because the new ballpark, people just want to experience it. And now they, 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 they have something that they've always wanted, a ballpark inside with air conditioning. You remember all the years going there as an opponent where it's hot, it's raining. It's, you know, I mean, the one year we were there, it was like tornadoes were happening right outside. Our plane got hit. Remember that? How crazy. Our plane, actually the stairs, the wind was so strong, the stairs hit the wing of the plane. They had to fly another plane in for us to then to go to Tampa. Mm -hmm. But now I got to think for them, just to know you're going to have a baseball game every day has to be huge. That's big. I mean, we had that luxury here in Oakland. I feel like there's rarely a rain delay here. Um, you know, playing in the AL East, there's a ton of rain delays, and it affects you as a player. Um, but, yeah, the, the stadium, like I said, is best in baseball, in my opinion. It's, a, it's more of a pitcher's park than a hitter's park, but in terms of showing up to work and playing every day, it's 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 one of the best. And I always enjoyed going to the old Texas even. I just I enjoy that road trip um, as a road player, that hotel. That just playing in Texas was nice, and now it's even better. You know, when I think about your journey, obviously, you know how our fan base feels. They wanted you to be here forever, and it was hard when you left. It was a, 
it was the start of kind of we know how this thing was going to roll and it was sad but you'll always be loved here obviously but when you went through that process you have that process really once in your career here you are free agent boom what was that like and why was the decision the texas rangers yeah well for me i i got to go through free agency twice technically um my body of work in 2020 was not as good as 2021, so the market was way better in 2021. Um, and I was, you know, at 31 years old, we were just trying to figure out how many years um, we could get and who, you know, who needed a middle infielder. I was still contemplating playing shortstop. Um, but now as a second baseman, we understood what the market was, and it came down to really – the numbers, um, the finances of it, and we got the best deal, uh, the best offer from Texas, and it was a place that was at the top of our list, and it, it really lined up. And I know you look at a deal like this and you say, this is what sets me up for the rest of your life, your career, generational wealth. That's great. We're all happy for you. But I think a guy like yourself who loves this game and keeps yourself in unbelievable shape, I mean, in your mind, aren't you thinking playing longer than this contract? I am. You know, I – Obviously, we're in year one of a seven-year contract. That's yeah. a long time from now. But the way I train and prepare is to, to play beyond that, of course. Um, I love the game. I'm, I'm the type of person who wants to play until they take the jersey off my back. Um, some people, you, you look at what Posey did and say, he had more years, he had more years. I'm, like I said, I'm the kind of guy who's going to keep going until I can't. And, you know, that's just how I was raised. How's the family doing? We're good. Um, three boys now. You know, kindergarten graduate, uh, preschooler, and a one-year-old just running around. And we're adjusting to Texas. You know, we we moved out there full time now, so uh, it's been a transition year, especially this off season with everything that went on with the, with the union and everything and free agency, and, and we're just getting settled in now. Yeah, we've watched your family grow, and it's interesting, you know, to watch you as a player, watch your family grow. It's been one of the things, and you know, life changes, but the one thing that I think it's always been a great advantage for you is your wife and how supportive she is, obviously being a former athlete herself and understanding the business. That, that's just got to help you. We know how hard you work, and we know what you put into it, and it helps that you have that support off the field. No doubt. Uh, my wife, you know, her work ethic is probably better than mine, um, not only when she played, but as a parent and as a, a wife. And for me, it's – it makes me uh, just more calm when I come to work to know that my family and my, my kids are in good hands. And um, I do everything I can here to make sure they're comfortable at home. Well, I'll say this because I know you got a meeting you got to go to. I've been doing this a long time, right? We say goodbye to Kurt Suzuki. We say goodbye to Stephen Vogt. We say goodbye to Jed Lowry. And <laughs> everybody, for some reason, they I mean, how many times did Ricky Anderson come back? Right, Jose Canseco came back. I know you're going to play a long time, and we, we, you know, even though you're in division, you know we're always going to root for you. You're one of our favorites of all time, just not just because of what you've done on the field, knowing what kind of person you are. We'll always root for you. I do feel if there's like, like players, I can see you back in an A's uniform. I don't know when. I just have a feeling we'll see you again in Oakland. Yeah, you never know. Like I said, I want to continue to play. Uh, as long as I can. Um, the goatee may be a little grayer. Uh, <laughs> we have that conversation, but, you know, you know this is home, um, and it's a place I'm very familiar with. And, you know, that's a long time from now, but I've seen tons of players come back here for a reason, and I know the reason. Um, and it's it's the community and the, the people in this organization that take care of players, and it's a certain brand of baseball that – players here love well i'll tell you what it's just fitting that our first day being able to be live on the field here for you on youtube and on twitter for it to be marcus simeon as our first guest as we look to continue to grow this hey thank you so much it's great to see you it's great to see that you're healthy happy the family's good and like i said for A's fans you're one of the favorite A's of all time and everybody here is always going to root for you whether you're playing against us or not, we will always root for you. So let's do this again soon, and good luck the rest of the season. You stay healthy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The great Marcus Simeon right here on A's Cast Live.
from Marcus to a lefty who pitched some good games for the A's. And great to see him back in the big leagues. Here's Tommy Malone. All right, we got Tommy Malone coming in. as a Scott Emerson from one from one left-hander to another here on A's Cast Live. Of course, Tommy, we remember his great times here with the Oakland Athletics and you know, some some really big games that, that he pitched. He's back up with the Seattle Mariners. And it's and it's great to see as we've we've stepped our game up since the last time you were there. You now can watch the show on YouTube, okay. you can watch it on Twitter, so it's just not streaming. Audio-wise, you can see it on video. So it's great to have you back. I know yeah. you're back up with the Mariners. Yeah. How are you? Great. Can't complain. I'm back here. I'm, uh, you know, kind of where it all started. And, I mean, it's good to be here for sure. The feelings when you step back out here, what are they like? Great. Great feelings. I mean, um, the athletics are kind of the first, uh, you know, real shot at being in the big leagues. So uh, it's always, you know, it's great to look around and, and kind of, see the, the familiar stadium and, and just kind of bring back those old memories. Yeah, reality, much hasn't changed since you left. Yeah, no, it hasn't <laughs> changed, but, like, that doesn't matter much, you know. It's what happens on the field and, you know, what's happening in the stands and in the, the clubhouse and stuff like that. You know, what it, it doesn't matter what it looks like is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, I mean, the relationships I saw, you know, we were talking about you with Emo as you were walking over, and there's Mickey Morabito, you're seeing him, Vince yep. Catronio, a lot of a lot of the same faces. Yep. I think that's one of the great things for guys that had such great moments here, as you did uh, with, with some teams here and in the postseason, for when you come back to see those familiar faces, it just takes you back to that time that was so special. Yeah, of course. It's always nice seeing familiar faces, you know, nowhere, no matter where I go. Um, but especially coming here, you know, obviously, like I said, like kind of where it all started and, uh, you know, I spent a majority of my career, you know, in, in this place, so um, or majority in one spot in this place. But um, you know, it's it's always nice to see see these guys. And uh, I was actually thinking to myself, like, it's not the same on the field, but you know, everywhere else, you know, it's it's about the same. So it's nice to nice to see everybody again. So back in the big leagues, tell us how this year's been going for you. It's been good. You know, uh, started off a little rough. Um, you know, signed with them a little late in spring training. Um, just dealing with some stuff as soon as I signed. So I was in Arizona for a little bit, um, cleaned that up, um, and then started pitching in Tacoma. And, you know, I've, I think I've had seven, had seven starts there and, you know, pitching really well. Um, so now they're giving me the opportunity up here. So, you know, right now I, I can't complain. Um, I get to keep putting on a jersey, get to keep pitching, keep, keep playing, you know, this kid's game, uh, trying to soak up as much as I can, you know, before it's all over. Um, and yeah, just trying to have fun and enjoy it. For you this off season and affected all of us for, I mean, you're talking about the business of baseball. Uh, just what was that like as a player, a team looking for that team? What was the lockout like for you? It wasn't fun by any means. Um, no, I didn't get one call before, you know, before the lockout, even during the lockout. Cause technically I was not considered a big league free agent because I had signed with uh, the Reds, played AAA and all that last year to end the season. Um, so technically I could have, you know, signed in the middle of the lockout, um, but still, you know, it was just, it was very weird. Um, there wasn't was, really much going on anywhere. No, it was, yeah, yeah. it was odd. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was just, it was kind of an unsettling feeling. Um, you know, obviously like you run scenarios through your head and it's like, nobody's calling, like, could this be it you know um but you know once it was over you know I, I continued to throw obviously we didn't know how long it was going to last but I continued to throw uh in preparation for the year and you know I, I still felt good so you know I wasn't going to give up um and you know eventually had a couple teams call they came out saw a bullpen obviously the Mariners being one of them um and just went from there they signed me what maybe two days three days later and I showed up to spring training and knowing that you were going to have a shot to get to the big leagues, right? That's yeah. one of the selling points for you. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think it helped, you know, being here in 2019. Pitching, I thought, pretty well for them. Um, they know me. Um, so, you know, I think as long as I can continue to be myself, pitch well, uh, I give myself a good shot of getting back up here. What is it like right now in that Mariner clubhouse? Because I know they had the team meeting. They've had some struggles. Just give me the vibe, what it's like in there. Yeah, it's it's still great in there. Um, you know, 
stuff that happens on the field, you know, obviously I've been with some teams that, you know, you carry it off and it's, it's almost just like a, it's just a business, you know, we're just going out there and playing a game and going home. But, um, this, this group of guys is, is different than that. Um, you know, even though I had the records not showing, you know, what we think that, you know, we can be, um, it's, it's, you know, it's lively in there, having fun, joke around. Um, it's still, you know, it's still the same as if we were winning. You know, it's still a lot of fun. And I think that's that's probably what's going to, you know, kind of turn the corner, help turn the corner, I guess, um, is you need those guys in there to, to keep it loose. And and when it's dark, you know, don't, don't get too dark. You know, keep it loose, have fun, and, and continue to play this game like it's a kid's game because really it is, and you're supposed to have fun doing it. We were talking yesterday about team meetings, and you've heard there's there's the ones where we're throwing all the coaches out. We want everybody out of here. We don't want you to be a part of it, you know. And then there's the ones where coaches are involved. And do they really work in your career? You've probably been through a few of them. Yeah. Do they really work in a game where you play every day versus, I guess, if you're like a football team that plays once a week, but a baseball team that plays every single day? How much does it really work? Um. It's hard to say because I think in the immediate future, I think it, it helps um, a lot, actually. You know, obviously, um, you're usually doing it on, a, on a, the day of a game, you know, before. Um, or I guess you could do it after the game. But um, I, think it, I think it helps because you get in that mindset of, you know, like, like, let's go. So you have that, like, kind of burst of energy. And, you know that burst of energy might not last the rest of the season, but it kind of kickstarts you into something that maybe, maybe a different gear that you weren't in before. So, um, I think it, I think it helps. Uh, you might not see it obviously, cause you know, like you said, it's a long season, you're going to go through your ups and downs, but I think overall, um, you just kind of get into that, that new gear and, and burst of energy and kind of hopefully that gets you kind of back on track. I asked Scott Emerson, I said, if you could ask Tommy one question, this is his question. Okay. Talking about sustainability, staying at this level, and not being a big part of the velo world. Yeah. That's not your gig. Your yeah. gig is pitching. So what he wanted to know is what is the key to staying here and sustaining the career as you don't have the big velocity? Continue to get outs, no matter what that that looks like. Um I think, uh, you know, I've been able to do it for the most part. Obviously, I've had my struggles, but um, I think just trusting myself and the type of pitcher that I am and, you know, knowing that I've had success at this level, doing it the way that I'm doing it, um, you know, I think a lot of it is, is mentality. Um, you got to go out there and know that you're going to get the guy out. You know, if you go out there and you, you know, doubt yourself, then you already lost. So, um I think for me, it's just confidence to go out there knowing that I'm going to get these guys out and um, not backing down. Yeah, as he as Emo says all the time, it's about the disruption of timing of the hitter. Mm -hmm. And we've got plenty of guys that throw 100 miles an hour who've got ERAs yeah. over five. Yeah. So when I hear about it, it's all about velo. I go, well, then, you know, why are all these guys who throw so hard getting racked? Yeah. I mean, still the key is hitting the spots. Yep. I mean, throwing strikes, utilizing your defense. I yep. mean, it's not – people act like pitching's changed, and I go, really? Yeah. No, it definitely hasn't changed, um, especially this the style that, you know, that I use is, like you just said, command the zone, uh, throw strikes, let your defense do the work. Obviously, you know, there are going to be games that they find holes, they, they drop in the outfield, and, you know, it doesn't end up going your way. But, you know, over time, I think um, – the success rate is going to be in your favor if you continue to throw strikes and and pound the zone and just give yourself a, a chance. You know, we're all talking about it. I don't even know if you guys know it. The whole thing about the Mississippi mud on the baseballs and how they've been doing it and how they've sent out the memo of how they want them to do it. Do you guys pay attention to any of that? Um, me personally, I I mean, I honestly, I just got up here, so yeah, I kind of saw what happened with um our guys in the um when upton got hit and you know the whole you know the the balls are looking like they're not rubbed up and stuff like that and you know in, in some cases i've i've been a part of you know places where it doesn't it looks like it comes straight out of the wrapper um <laughs> and 
it's it's not a fun feeling because like they do feel very slick when yeah. they're like that. But um, you know, I pitched the other day and I you know I thought they were okay. So I mean, this was after the fact. So after I'm, the memo, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that um, they took a little bit of extra time. But um, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of experience on that one, at least this year for sure. So it feels like a brand new golf ball you have taken out of a sleeve. Yeah, <laughs> they just took it right out of the the wrapper and threw it out. That's how sometimes it feels. And, I mean, you see these guys, like, um, I don't remember who it was, but the guy for the Angels, he's grabbing the balls and just throwing them, grabbing them, throwing them. I actually remember uh, someone for us did that um, back in 19. And I don't remember who it was, but just I, saying, I just remember I, nope, in my head I can nope. see it. he's grabbing a ball, looking at it, nope, looking at it, <laughs> nope, throwing it out, kept throwing it out. And so, I mean, I think it's been probably an issue for a little while, and, I don't know. Is that, is that odd that we're in 2022 and we're still talking about this? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. It's I mean, your entire career. Think about it. We've, we've questioned what ball we using. Is yeah. it wound too well, tight or the seams? I mean, I mean, I feel like this wasn't an issue. At least I, I didn't notice it until, what, maybe the last four or five years. I didn't. I really didn't think about it, you know, my the first part of my career. I, I don't remember ever looking down at a ball and, and thinking this doesn't look rubbed up enough. So I think it's been more recent than, than you know, the first part. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. We're still talking about the ball after all these years. <laughs> hey, I know you guys are warming up right now. I know we only had so much time. Hey, thank you for stopping by. Yeah. You're always one of our favorites. No, I appreciate We that. appreciate it. We wish you nothing but the best of luck. And, uh uh, go out there and give them hell with the with the uh, with the Mariners and great to see you back in the big leagues. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. We got more coming up next right here on A's Cast Live. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And he will go down as one of the all-time A's favorites as a coach, our buddy and new World Series champion, Ron Washington. Well, now joining us once again here on A's Cast Live, he's one of the great Oakland A's. He'll always be a part of the green and gold family, but now is with the Atlanta Braves as the A's are getting uh, ready to take on the Braves in Atlanta. Ron Washington is with us. Wash, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We are doing fantastic. And, you know, I just got to thank for what you guys accomplished winning the World Series, and now you're getting your mojo back again that uh, life down there in the South has to be really good. Yes, it is. You know, um, we've been um, spinning our wheels there at the beginning, but uh, we're finally starting to put things together. We're starting to get some consistency throughout the lineup and in the pitching staff. And one thing we always do, play defense. You know, we got to see pictures of the World Series ring, which uh, so well-deserved, and what a run you guys had. And I know you don't want to focus completely on last year, but just kind of a follow-up on that. What was it like for, for you, the staff, all the players, everybody in the organization to get those World Series rings? Well, it was uh, a tremendous moment because, uh, you know, I've been to two World Series, but it's nothing like winning the World Series, so... Um, it was nice. It was it, it, the, the most amazing thing is how those guys hung together throughout the year when we was uh, trying to get it going. And then once we got it going, uh, we held on to it until the end. And that's really what it's about. Yeah. How important is that for the players to listen to the coaches, to listen to the manager? And when maybe you don't start off great and when, maybe you haven't gotten your mojo yet, to never stop giving it everything because once that light switch flips, everything changes. And I think the Braves of last year are one of the great examples of that. Well, there's no doubt about it. And when you play this game of baseball, you're going to go through ups and downs. And the thing was, we knew we had the capability inside that clubhouse. And as, the, as you mentioned, the manager and the coaching staff, 
uh, we didn't let up. Uh, we kept uh, coming out, going about our business the way we always go about our business. We didn't take anything for granted. We continued to believe in, in each other inside that clubhouse. And as you said, eventually, you know, we got, got our game going. We started playing baseball the way we knew we were able to play baseball and hoped that we had played baseball that way from the beginning. But, you know, in baseball, you can't predict it. You just got to go out between those lines and perform. And um, we just kept working at it and things came together. And um, like you said, that should be a message to anyone early in the year when things aren't going the way you, you would like it to go, but you know you have the capability. Well, everybody, just like last year, uh, we're seeing it this year. Everybody wanted to crown the Mets champs, and all of a sudden, you guys have won five straight. Uh, you're coming off a four-game sweep of the Colorado Rockies. You've gotten to that 500 mark, and you've gone to game over it. You've won five in a row. I see you're scoring more runs per game, but what, what's the main reason why the Braves are starting to get hot again? Consistency. Uh, we get more consistency through our starting staff. We're getting the consistency out of our bullpen when they come in and, um, you know, they have to do a job. We get more consistency now from more guys in the lineup uh, with offensively. And, and as I mentioned earlier, um, we never stopped playing defense. So uh, now that we got things going in the lineup uh, with more than two guys, we got four or five guys now that start to swing the bat the way they're capable of. And now we're starting to get the, the innings out of our starting pitcher, um, you know, our starting pitchers, uh, which makes a difference. Now, instead of having to get five innings out of that bullpen, we might have to get three. We might have to get two. And that's what you need when you want to talk about, uh, you know, being consistent through a year. And as you mentioned, the Mets, uh, they're not the same Mets of the past. They will not collapse. We have to play baseball and catch them. And um, that's the way it's going to be. And now we ready. We, we focused and we're ready to do just that. Wash, you are so speaking to the choir when it comes to innings pitch. That's why we always love talking to you. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, all your years in this game as a player, as a manager, as a coach, uh, you know, these games where you have starters not go very long. Then you need to have four, five, six. We'll see seven, eight relievers in a game. The continuity of the game is awful, and the numbers just show. The deeper your starter goes, the better chance you have of winning games. Uh, does it scare you the way our game is going, how we just don't, like people, the freeze front offices just don't want starters going deep into games? And, you know, that's that has to change because the only – success you're going to have is having your starters go deep in the game. If not, your bullpen, I don't care how good they are, they will blow out. Um, you know, they will blow out. Uh, guys need a break here and there, and the only person that can give them that break is the starting pitchers. You know, Matt Olson, who we absolutely love, he's a great person, and happy for him to go back home, sign that big eight-year, $168 million deal with the Braves. But you're replacing an Atlanta legend. Freddie Freeman was so big down there. He was like the next uh, generation, like Chipper Jones was for kids way back when. He was like the new Chipper Jones. Obviously, leaving for L.A. was not easy. Uh, what do you think it's been like for Matt Olson having to try and replace Freddie Freeman, if that's even fair? Well, that's not fair. You know, you're talking about replacing a potential Hall of Famer a guy who's a, a natural uh, in that batter's box, a guy who's a natural in the clubhouse, a guy who's a natural on the field, period. But if we had to replace Freddie, and it is a replacement, uh, we couldn't have picked a better guy than Matt Olson. And, um, you know, all we've been preaching to Matt is just be Matt Olson. Whatever Matt Olson gives us is enough. And uh, we love Matt Olson. And, um, you know, he's been tremendous for us. He really has. And he's starting to swing the bat now. You know, for a minute there, it got to him. But he had to realize, just be Matt Olson. Don't try to replace anyone. Because, I mean, trades happen and, and free agent signs happen um, in this game constantly. And, um, you know, you just have to come and be who you are. And who Matt Olson is, is enough for the Atlanta Braves. You know, when we talk about the greats in the game and you start debating all these different players, if you're hurt, you start getting left out of that conversation. And Acuna's back. 
I mean, the, the numbers I have is last 10 games, he's hitting 378, bunch of extra base hits, bunch of RBIs. He's got his swagger back. You know how special this young man is. What has that meant for your guys' lineup? What's it meant for the organization to have this great, dynamic young player back? Well, he, he, he creates havoc. And, um, you know, uh, having him back and now he's starting to get comfortable and it means a lot to our lineup. It means a lot to our team. I mean, he doesn't only bring that offense uh, when he's in that batter's box. He plays tremendous defense. He got a strong arm. Um, he runs the heck out of the bases. He makes things happen. And um, we certainly need him because we don't have what you might, might call a ton of speed in our lineup. But we do have guys uh, that's capable of doing some things on the base pads. And um, he's the leader in that part of it. So um, it means a lot to us. And I know it means a lot to Ronald because he's like a kid in the candy store right now, being able to be back on the field. Well, you mean a lot to the Oakland A's and the Oakland A's mean a lot to you. What is it always like when you look over to that other dugout and you see that A's uniform, which I know means a lot to you? I just want them to be successful. You know, and when you play the game of baseball, it's not the best team that wins. It's the team that played the best that night. And all I want to do is play better than them to the next two nights. But I'm definitely, uh, my heart is always in Oakland. Um, my heart is always there because of the way the fans treated me when I was there, the community, the organization. I owe a lot to them. And I will never, ever forget the Oakland A's. You know, one thing that, you'll always be remembered as one of the great coaches in this franchise's history. And I can tell you, uh, Wash, I, I just was the MC for the 1972 reunion and they had the team out there. And when, you know, when you're looking at the greats, you know, like Vita Blue and Reggie Jackson and, and Raleigh Fingers, some of the greatest players of all time, the one thing they always talked about those teams in 72, 73, 74 was defense and pitching, but they always said defense. It's something you've always preached. It's what the greatest teams have always been good at. Now that the A's are kind of in a rebuild mode, as a coach, how important is it? Everybody wants to talk home runs, launch angles, strikeouts, but how important is it to preach every day the fundamentals for these players to help get them better when they are having a losing season? Well, the fundamentals is the key because you always have something to fall on when things don't go right. So you have to be fundamentally sound. Um, you may not have the personnel sometimes to compete with people, but if you're playing the game right, you're respecting the game, you're respecting yourself about how you go about your business, uh, you'll be surprised the results you can get. And the only problem I have today with, with our youth is they want sudden results. And results is, is created by a process. You have to go through a process. And my process has always been, ever since I've been in the game, even when I was with Oakland, let's pitch and let's catch the ball and let's see what happened on the offensive side. We're not making our offense the main goal. Our main goal got to be how well we can pitch the ball and how well we can pick up the outs that are outs. And um, that's the key right there. And, you know, Oakland always uh, supplied pitching. So they definitely have some good arms. Now the people behind them got to make sure when they put that ball in play as an out, we turn it into an out. And that has to be preached and preached and preached and preached. You know, there's priorities in this game. And for me, it's pitching and defense. Well, you're not going to be able to be here later this summer. We're going to honor a team that you were a big part of, the 2002 A's. Obviously, the win streak, it then led to a best-selling book, which then led to a movie that you were portrayed in that was uh, up for an Oscar. When you think about 2002, that group of guys you were with, what do you think about when you think about that team? Well, the main thing I think about is the part in that movie where Billy had the conversation with David Justice in the cage. They had that conversation. I was riding the bus with the players at the time, and David Justice got on the bus. We was going on that 10-game I was going on a 10-game road trip, and he said, fellas, we should come back off this road trip 9-1. and one. We came back 10-0. We came home for a seven-game uh, homestand, and he said, we should end this, this homestand 6-1. and one. We ended up 6-6, six and, six, and, and then we won four more after that. But uh, 
that's the one thing I think about the most because that was reality. That wasn't something that was made up. That conversation was was had. And you think about the terrific players that that you guys had, and and, and a player that during that during that winning streak had so many big hits. You helped mold his game. You helped turn him into an MVP. Talk about Miguel your, Tejada. <laughs> talk about talk about your relationship with Miggy and, and, and how you worked with him. And boy, in O2, there really not too many people in the history of this game have played better and bigger than he did in that year. Talented, very talented. Um, once again, we had to slow him down. We had to make him understand that this is a process. You go through it day by day. You take the ups and downs with it. You learn from the downs. And Miggy was a prime example of that. Uh, you know, the whole team was, you know. Uh, we, we would pitch and catch the ball, and then we would get a big hit. And the money ball situation, you know, it was about on-base percentages and stuff like that. But, but we had Molda, Hudson, and Zito. They were never mentioned. <laughs> you know, so it was, once again, uh, we did what we did in 202. And because of the pitching that we had, those guys would go out there and give us a chance every night. And we went a game with one swing of the bat with four hits, with three hits. One swing of the bat late, we win it. And it was because our pitching staff kept us in the game. So I'm a, definitely a big proponent of good pitching and good defense. And as long as baseball is in existence, I will be a proponent of good pitching and defense. Well, I don't care if the A's are playing the Braves. You have meant so much to us here on A's Cast Live and what you have meant to this organization. And whether it's Walt Weiss or it's Matt Olson, we're going to be pulling for you guys down there because uh, once an A, always an A. We always appreciate your time. You be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, and I just want to say I love the Bay Area, and I love the Oakland A's. Thank you. And great to have Howard Bryant, author of Ricky, the life and legend of an American original. Howard Bryant, longtime writer. He is absolutely fantastic, and uh, we loved having him on talking Ricky Henderson. Uh, Howard Bryant joins us. Howard, it's been a really long time since the last time I had you on. Uh, it was way back in the day when I was on KMBR in San Francisco, but it's great to have you back on the program. And we were just, before we get into Ricky, I know you've done the book on Hank Aaron, and we just played in Atlanta, and a lot of talk about Hank Aaron and his greatness and seeing the statue on TV, and I was just reminiscing about the one time I interviewed him, and it's just, it's kind of a wow moment because you know you're truly talking to greatness, and while you're talking to greatness, you also realize just the nicest guy for how great he was. I mean, he was just such a gentleman, and it was such an honor. And so so for, I, for me to be able to say – I interview Hank Aaron is really cool thing. Yeah, Henry was tremendous. And as awesome as that was for for Henry to invite me into his home and to meet his family and to to write about his life. It was staggering and a huge responsibility. And whenever I talk to journalism schools and talk to students, you always remind them that when you write about people, whether it's a 500 page, page article or I'm sorry, 500 word article or a 500 page book, you have their entire life in your hands. It's your responsibility to represent them properly and to represent them accurately. And when you're tasked with taking on someone like Hank Aaron, it's a staggering amount of responsibility in terms of making sure you get it right. Because when Henry and I first spoke, which was on Jackie Robinson's birthday in 2006, I believe, January 31st, 2006, Henry just punched me right in the face with it. He's like, I don't talk to media because you guys say you want to get it right and then you get it wrong and then you correct it and then I have to correct the correction. And I just don't believe that you can tell my story accurately. And so that was how Henry and I first decided to get into doing this. And so to, to be able to take on these ideas, whether it's Henry or Ricky, huge amount of responsibility, and you just hope that you get it right. You know, what is it like when you start going down the path? Because I'm sure you have ideas of why you want to get into it, whether you're talking about Ricky Henderson or any type of book or, as you mentioned, an article you've been writing for so long. You have an idea going in, but like anything else, as you're going down the highway, you go off onto, onto different off-ramps. 
What is that like when you start with an idea and it just good, bad, ugly, whatever, it grows and it changes in front of you? Well, the biggest thing that you have to do is to know what you're talking about. That's the first thing. You have to have an idea of what you want to say, how you want to say it. Do you have the access to say it? Do you have the opportunity to say it? What do you do when you're dealing with a subject that you really care about, but you may not have access to the subject? So those are the challenges of trying to get a project done. And then, of course, the other thing is, is that you cannot be dogmatic about it. You have to let the research take you wherever the research is going to take you, no matter what you think you're going into. The research in the writing is going to dictate what the project ends up ultimately being. And in, in Ricky's case, for me, I was really interested in Oakland. It was it was really the idea that one, this city is so underrepresented in terms of like the greatness of the players. And then next it was Ricky as a character. You start thinking about you start putting him up against the best of the best of the best. And all of a sudden, you're like, there ain't a whole lot of guys around us. And now that lends itself to here's somebody who's absolutely worthy of the full treatment. And there aren't as many as we think. The greatness the of greatness Ricky of Henderson. I mean, you know, you try and tell kids, you know, because we're looking at all these analytics and everything. It's like, hey, the goal of this game is to score more runs than the other team. And that thing, home plate, touching home plate, is the number one goal to do it as many times as you possibly can. And for all of us who got to see his entire career, nobody touched home plate more than Ricky Henderson. You can talk about the stolen bases. You can talk about a lot of different things. But the number one thing, he did it more than anybody else. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. No, they don't. Nor do they think about the means to the end. They think about, they think about stealing bases as the goal. Stealing bases gets you 90 feet closer to home plate. That's the goal. And that's why Ricky, when people would call Ricky the greatest base dealer of all time, obviously he would accept that because he is. But there was a second piece to it, which is this is going to help me win games. This is just a means to an end. I'm the best at it, but it really is a means to the end. And the end is crossing home plate. What in this what? book did you do? that you went, wow, I had, because you've known Ricky Anderson for a while. What did you investigate, find out that we can read in this book that you didn't know and probably none of us know? Well, I think there are three things that really jump out. One is the roots of Oakland. Always known the Oakland story. We've always, you know, we know the Bill Russell, Frank Robinson story. We know that Frank Robinson and Beta Pinson and Kurt Flood all shared the same outfield at, at McClyman's. We all know those stories. But what we never really, what I never really saw anywhere else and I thought was really important to dig into was where those guys came from. And what I found fascinating was something that we never talk about in sports, which is the effect of the Great Migration on the city itself, on Oakland. There's a reason why Frank Robinson and, and Veda and Flood and Bill Russell all lived in West Oakland. And what was crazy about it was it was, this, it was segregation that black families weren't really allowed to live anywhere else in the city at that time in the early 40s. But the other piece of it, too, was all those guys came from the same place. That you got Huey Newton, who is one of the co-founders of the Black Panthers. He grows up in Monroe, Louisiana, just a mile or so away from where Bill Russell grew up. And they end up being neighbors in West Oakland. And then the same thing happens with Frank Robinson and Bobby Seale and, and Ricky and Lloyd Mosby. And before you know it, you go, this is unbelievable. That I didn't know that, the, that Paul Silas, that the Silases and the Pointers were related. So Paul Silas and the Pointer Sisters both lived over by McClyman's High. I mean, it's an incredible wow. amount of talent. It's a staggering amount of talent in a 15-block in a radius. I had never heard that one before. There are 14 of them. The Silas Pointers all lived in the same house up off of Adeline in West Oakland. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. So there was that. That was the one, one thing I didn't know. And the other thing I didn't know, and I got it from talking to Mike Norris, was Mike Norris told me this was an amazing story. When Ricky and Mike Norris were in AA in Jersey City, they came back to, the, to, their, um, to their house one day, uh, the apartment that they shared, and... Ricky was writing his future wife, Pam, writing her a letter 
and he kept asking Mike Norris how to spell certain words. And it's when he realized that Mike saw that Ricky was really having trouble reading. And then that was where, um, you know, Mike concluded that Ricky maybe didn't read very well. And he says, but let me tell you how smart Ricky was. Ricky taught himself how to read in three weeks during the summer of 1978. I'd never heard that before. And he said that he was that he found out when Ricky was trying to write Pam a letter and and Mike just kept saying, well, Ricky, if you can't if you can't read all of these these stories, how do you know what people are saying about you? How do you know how you're being portrayed? And so he and Mike Norris sat there and read the newspaper for the entire summer when they were in double A. And I asked Ricky the story and Ricky said, yeah, we were such good athletes that they always pushed us through in school. And that we, whenever there was a game and we had a test, we always went to go play. And I said, sounds like today as well. Yes, very sad. Yes, very sad. But it also shows you, you know, the success of Ricky Henderson was not all about just uh, how great an athlete he was because has done very well with his money. And as you just said, taught himself, helped educate himself. There's something special inside. There's a reason why. There's something special inside him. There's a reason why he was so successful, and it's just not because he ran fast. Ran fast. No, it was the, the, the desire to succeed, and that is the thing. I mean, and Ricky, Ricky's no, he's not dumb. I mean, Ricky knows his math. I mean, Ricky just had trouble reading. It was the English part of it, but that's why he's such a devastating, legendary card player. He knows how to count the cards. He's, math is very... Math comes very naturally to him, but the reading part didn't. But, you know, the way, the way Mike said it and the way Pamela Henderson said it as well, when he puts his mind to something, you cannot beat him. And you're 100% right. That's not just about having athletic talent. That's having desire. The desire to succeed and overcome and defeat whatever the opponent is. And that was something fascinating. And I think the other thing that I learned doing this book as well, and I really, really appreciated it, was this storyline about history, about time and the arc of history, that Ricky was not a very popular player. He was not a very likable player. A lot of players couldn't stand him. They didn't like his swagger. They didn't like how, how good he was. They didn't like how he told you how good he was. But then over time, over the course of 25 years in the game, now they want to celebrate him. And it's fascinating how time works that way, how, how Ricky is now the epitome of all the things we miss about the game, that the game doesn't have as much personality as it, as it did back then, and that Ricky was ahead of his time, and that now he is this Satchel Page and Yogi Berra combination of just an American treasure. And I just love that story arc, how over time we begin to appreciate when it's gone. And then you look back and you go, damn, he obliterated the record book. And so I just love the fact that over time you see how good he was. And as much as people talk about analytics and as much as people talk about oh, how analytics are ruining the game, the analytics guys were the ones who really, really went out of their way to, to, to resuscitate Ricky because the numbers showed he was even better than we thought he was looking at him with our two eyes. Yeah, I always mentioned here on this show, and I don't want to be known as an A's homer, but I, I always say, listen, there's Hall of Famers. I mean, I've been to the, to the Hall of Fame quite a bit. I've been around this game for a long time. There's the great players, there's the Hall of Famers, and then there's that upper echelon of guys. And even in Dennis Eckersley's talk about it. There's those guys that are the, the Hall of the Hall of Famers, and rookies up there. But I, I'm glad what you just talked about. I want to throw this at you and get your opinion because this was – a very interesting conversation. We're in San Diego for the winter meetings right before COVID hits, right? It's 2019. We're like one of the only shows down there. It's like us and the Yes Network, and we're down there covering the winter meetings. Sandy Alderson, at that point, has not gotten back to the Mets. He's he's basically a, a special assistant to Billy Bean and the A's, and we just get to talking and we get on Ricky Henderson. We're talking about all the guys that he's moved, traded, and brought in. And he's talking about bringing Ricky Henderson back from the New York Yankees to add to this team that's been to the World Series, but can Ricky get them over the hump, which he would do, but in the room, 
They had a discussion, and there was, I guess, quite a few people in there. Some were for, some were against. Bringing Ricky Henderson back to the A's because of whatever you want to call it, I don't know. But I was kind of uncomfortable doing the interview. I'm like, and and Sandy was like, I don't think a lot of people. It was like one of those things where it just like came to Sandy, and Sandy's like, I don't think a lot of people know about this, or this has really been reported. But yeah, there were people in the room that said, don't bring Ricky back. He'll be back for the team. So here we're talking about one of the greatest players of all time in his prime. The A's at the time were like, should or shouldn't we bring him back? Would he be good? Of course, they would, and it would help win the World Series in 1989. But back then, there was doubt on whether he'd be good to bring him inside the clubhouse. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's 100% right. And I talked to Sandy about that very thing in, in spring training in Mesa a couple of years ago. And you're right. I mean, this is this is the thing when we talk about the arc of Ricky, that Ricky goes to New York in 1985 puts up enormous numbers, and yet they don't win. So what's the rap on Ricky in the mid-'80s? The rap on Ricky is that really big personality, really sort of aloof, not really a team player, puts up big numbers, but he's not a winner. Okay, they went to the ALCS in 81 in the strike year, but the, the, the knock on Ricky was that he was not a championship ball player. And we know guys like that. We've seen guys like that who put up big numbers but never win a thing. And it makes you wonder if they are championship-level players. So here's Ricky, and they're actually wondering if, if moving a couple of guys, if moving Eric Plunk or Greg Cattery is worth Ricky Henderson. What does that tell you about where? What does that tell you about where? It's Stan Javier. What, what does that say about his reputation yeah. as a ball player? And Ricky understood that. And when what I always say is that when you look at Ricky. You look at Ricky from 1989 to 1991, this is some of the greatest baseball that's ever been produced. Ricky had a chip on his shoulder to show the world that he was not just a great player, but he was a champion. He was a championship-level player and that you were a better player with him on your team. And it shows you sort of where he was at in his career that there was a question about having him on a team that was an inch away from being a championship team, especially coming from where they had come from, having lost to the Dodgers the way they lost. And one of my favorite things about that story is that, and Ricky told me this, is that the night Kirk Gibson hits the home run, and this begins the fall of the A's for that series, the A's are aware that they are short, that they need one more piece to get this engine going. That engine was at the ballpark. Ricky was there last night. Ricky was in the seats when Kirk Gibson hit the home run. He was the guest of Mike Davis, who actually walked to set up the home run that Gibson hit. And then Ricky, who's in the stadium, ends up being the final piece to the puzzle the very next year. Well, I got to tell you, I don't know how many people know this, but Ricky, you just think about Ricky in Oakland. Uh, so for years, I also worked for the Raiders. And I would actually, the fastest way for me to get up to do the post-game show from the field, I would run into Ricky Henderson in the Westside Club at Raider games. Here's, like, one of the greatest players of all time at the bar, Westside Club, Raider game, just hanging out with people. Like, it, it, Ricky was such a regular guy. For such a star, he was always, even, even after his playing days, a regular guy. Yeah. I remember seeing Ricky one day at Sky Harbor in Phoenix, just on the escalator, heading out. I was like, well, oh, there's Ricky. Ricky gave a little nod. I gave a little nod, and that was that. But 100%. And that was one of the things that I really loved about doing this book. And it, it was the fact that that there is a, a, a connection to Ricky and this town in Oakland that is unbreakable. And... It's not just that he's from here, there. It's not just that he played there. He is there. He really does embody what that city's all about. And that's not true of everybody being born in a given place. There's a certain connection that you have. And he's got it. And what I was thinking about as I was working on these chapters and trying to consider what was going to stay, what was going to go, how do you approach this, is that there really is an anchor to his professional and personal life. And it's that city. And what was really bothersome to me was that the 
the original subtitle of that of this book was Ricky Henderson and the Legend of Oakland. And the publisher didn't like Oakland in the title because they thought Oakland regionalized the book and didn't make it national, maybe made the book too small. So we had to change the subtitle. And a little secret to future writers out there, you may control every you may control everything in the book, but the publisher controls the title and the cover. You may lose that battle. I have lost that battle many times. And so to be able to tell these stories and to connect Ricky to Oakland, that Oakland is a place that gave him a certain level of grounding and it was always better for him. Like I, I still, my first encounters with Ricky professionally was 1998, his last day in Oakland. It was my first year on the beat for the San Jose Mercury News. And what I found fascinating about Ricky is that when you watch great players, top shelf players, by the time they're 39, 40 years old, they're not the same. And Ricky wasn't the same. And everybody knew it. He hit, what, 236 that year. But he could still hurt you. And for somebody who was considered so selfish and for somebody who wasn't considered a team player, for somebody who got, got dogged all the time, there was a complete lack of ego with Ricky. Most great players, when they're not the same anymore, they quit because they can't handle the type of failure that the rest of us have to deal with, that all the other major league players have to deal with and that we have to deal with in life. But because they're so great, they're not used to that type of failure. And people on the A's that year just marveled at the fact that he was able to be so comfortable in his own skin when most players at that level just aren't used to failing that way. They're not used to losing, striking out, getting beat by guys who had no business beating them. And it just made people love Ricky even more because it said, you know what? He really does love this game and he loves competition, even if he's not on top. And then at the same time, there's going to be a moment at some point, whether he goes 0 for 12 or 1 for 20, where he's going to hurt you and become Ricky Henderson again and remind you that he's still the legend. And I just love that about this story. I just love that in, in, in not just the things that Ricky said, but in all of the people who played with him, whether it was Terry Steinbach or Eck or any of those guys, they just they had so many things to say about him. You could tell he was just a cut above, just a totally different legendary dude. The narrative on Ricky Henderson, as you mentioned, from Billy Martin's A's to the Yankees, then to the greatness of the A's in the late 80s, 90s, onto Toronto, all of that, really started to change as he got older. As you mentioned, we started to really realize how much he loved to play. When he's playing for the San Diego Surf Dogs, you're realizing that this guy just wants to play. And it doesn't matter the stats. It doesn't matter the money. He's got every dime he's ever made. He's financially set for the rest of his life. Ricky loved to play baseball. And that's why we always have fun on this show talking about, you know, we, we've gone through it. Nine teams. Do you love Ricky Henderson, the Seattle Mariner, or the Red Sox, or the Angel, or the Padre, or the Dodger? That's the thing I think in the end once we get – because there was that time in the mid – I want to say late 80s, early 90s, we had the passing around, and Howard, we're showing how old we are, uh, where it's Will Clark's the highest-paid player. Now it's Jose Canseco. Then it's Ricky Henderson. Then it's Kirby Puckett. Everybody was – you know, that three, $4 million-a-year player. Every And everybody – Ricky always wanted to be the highest. As years went on, you started to realize it wasn't – a. Money was nice, and Ricky cared about money, and every professional athlete should care about it. But Ricky, in the end, just loved playing the game, and he proved that for how many teams he played and how for how he's playing in Long Beach, the San Diego Surf Dogs. Ricky proved to us how much he loved the game. Loved the game. No, that's right. And I just absolutely had so much appreciation for his willingness to put himself out there and play. That I'm not going to make excuses for, you know, back in my day, you couldn't have gotten the ball by me. He wasn't like that. Put them on the field, and it's go time, and let's just play. And that takes an amazing amount of discipline. I remember talking to Art Howe about it, and Art was saying how everybody who steps in that batter's box, they know. They know when it gets past them. They know when it's time to say goodbye. And sometimes it's even easier to say goodbye when you're struggling because the game is telling you you can't do it anymore. And yet Ricky was still able at 39 years old to lead the league in stolen bases in 1998. 
at 39 years old still had a <laughs> three and he had a 400 on base. It's incredible <laughs> what this guy could do. It's it's just you just shake your head. I mean the 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 stat that gets me the most about Ricky is the Red Sox stat. He joins the Red Sox in 2002. From 1979 to 2001, Ricky stole more bases than the Red Sox as a team. You can't, once again, I mean, this is the type of stuff you're never going to see again. 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs, 2,000 walks, 1,000 plus stolen bases. Forget it. I mean, this is as distant as 1,400 stolen bases is as distant as Cy Young's 511 wins. I'll give you one, and and you've been so gracious with your time. And trust me, we're going to promote the hell out of this book for you because I want everybody to read it. And he's the greatest player in our franchise's history. With the guys in Philadelphia, that was a different area, obviously, but there was great players. But this MLB stat pack, I'll never forget. I was reading it one day, and it says, Derek Jeter, with one more stolen base, will become the all-time leader in Yankee stolen bases, and he'll be passing Ricky Henderson. And I was like, and I was like, Ricky didn't play that long in New York. So you're saying all those years, all those Yankee greats, Ricky wasn't there that long, and it took Derek Jeter 20 years to break his record? That blew my mind. Well, and on top of that, Ricky had the, the all-time Yankee stolen base record. Ricky broke it three times in four years in New York. <laughs> it's it, and seriously, if you look at that record of the the top Yankee stolen base, single season stolen base guys, it's Derek Jeter who needed twenty years to break what Ricky did in four. Ricky, Ricky, and Ricky. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's amazing. Hey, it's been a long hey, time. Been a- it's always an honor. Uh, your work through all the different places you've been. Uh, your work is as good as anybody's, and you're a great follow on Twitter. Uh, I hope you nothing. Hope for nothing but the best with this book. We'll do everything we can to try and get it into the hands of every single A's fan. Uh, we'll try and give some out here. We'll talk to you about that off. But uh, congratulations with the book and such a great career. And it's an honor to have you here on A's Cast Live. No, thank you. It's my it's my pleasure. As I said, I'm always close to Oakland. It was my first job in the business, and Mickey and Boos and Art and everybody. It's just, it's you know that book is as almost as autobiographical in some ways because it was the roots of me getting into the business. So nothing but respect for Oakland, for that town, for the team. Well, as you mentioned, well, San Jose mentioned- Mercury News. Uh, I've lived in San Jose since '91, so I was reading you back years ago in the Merc. Go in the Merc. Thank you. We'll be in touch. You'll we'll be, be well. Touch. You'll be well. Thank you. Take care. Howard Bryan. I Howard. can't wait to read it. We want to thank Marcus Simeon, Tommy Malone, Ron Washington, and Howard Bryant for all coming on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.